Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You will also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. I'm in conversation with Jeremy Kriegel, a UX leader and a host of the Saving UX podcast. Jeremy talks about his origin story of how he got into the UX space accidentally while doing an undergrad in art and English at the Carnegie Mellon University and how he got introduced to the human computer interaction as a more formal domain to learn and how he moved across various companies across industries and had a good grounding in this space when he was working with Xerox he talks about the relevance of user research and how or why many companies do not do that today about the need for creating processes that are suited to the team's ways of working and being inspired by agile approaches how he blends that into his own ways of working and how creativity is part of everybody's work not just people who are labeled as the creatives he also talks about creating a holistic vision in a lightweight way and a tree analogy that is used by jeff patton his thumb rule of gathering inputs from at least eight people to get a more comprehensive understanding of the problem and what possible solutions could be emerge the role based personas approach key fields needs to be relooked at to identify inflection points to understand how the user needs change over time and he also talks about how one can learn a lot from the model used by game builders to keep the users engaged at different levels of complexity listen on hi jeremy welcome to the software people stories i uh, could be here thanks for having me yeah this is uh, one of those conversations that i've been waiting for a long time uh, coincidentally when i started this podcast uh, a little more than 4 years ago uh, the very first episode of the episode 0 was titled the importance of uh, devops and ux Uh, so ux has been one of my you can say favorite topics for a long time i've been dabbling with it uh, at different stages and i'm really curious about the various developments and uh, some of your perspectives on some things that are happening now but before we probably get on to that uh, we can start with your origin story and maybe your career trajectory in terms of how you got into ux and then how the association with it has been <laughs> uh, let's see i think i got into ux accidentally and my career path has been messy so how's that for a for a start um that makes it interesting yeah you know so i got my start in the mid 90s i was an undergrad at carnegie mellon university mm-hmm. and i was doing a dual degree in art and english oh, okay and obviously in a very technical school and 
1995-ish, Webb was pretty young. Mm-hmm. And uh, someone that I knew through the their interaction with Carnegie Mellon, but they were in the professional community, came to me one day because my art program was, it was called an electronic and time-based media. Now I was doing oh. like robotic sculpture, but <laughs> uh, this person comes up to me and says, my company has some web work that needs to be done. Can you do it? And this really quick kind of script ran in my mind. It said, you know nothing about programming for the web, mm-hmm. but you have some friends that are doing it. They're playing around with it. I bet this pays better than work study. So I just said, yes. Mm. And then I went about kind of forming this little consultancy and kind of hiring friends and colleagues and other people around Carnegie Mellon. And we had this little student run, uh, badly run agency that did some early web design uh in in the mid 90s and um from there when i was getting ready to graduate i was running this while working on my degrees i I decided that i was boy was i screwing up a lot and as much as i enjoy learning by screwing up i i thought it was maybe better to learn from other people so uh, actually uh, someone I kind of, again, also sort of accidentally, I got introduced to HCI and -hmm. like, oh, like the thing that I've sort of been doing intuitively, there's a practice around. Mm. And so I got myself to uh, Sig Chi that year. Uh, This is back in like 1998, did a ton of interviewing, landed an offer at Xerox and then worked for Xerox for two years. Now I kind of looked at that as like my master's degree equivalent, if you will, because Mm -hmm. We had a usability lab. We had we had industrial design. We had software design. We, I mean, it was really a full suite, big department, really uh, incredible depth of 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 experience for me to learn from. Uh, and then I I left there after two years, moved to Boston, worked at Sapient for a while, um, and then it was kind of a string of startups and agencies and independent consulting and big companies. Like I've, I've worked in just about every industry and any kind of size of company. Uh, so it's been a, a pretty varied experience, but a lot of the, if I was kind of point to a theme, I would say it, it, there's been a, a lot revolving around agility, which I, I kind of got exposed to in 2007. So I've been pretty involved with the agile community and I tend to build practices in small to medium sized companies sometimes coming in as the first UX person and and then growing the practice from there. Yeah, that covers a lot of ground. In fact, I kind of recall that you know, Xerox Park was probably one of the uh, sources for a lot of work on user experience and related things, the whole WIMP model that everyone talks about. Yeah, And, and, really and I always say Xerox, I, I should qualify, I did not work at Park. I was working at Xerox in upstate New York doing software design for these um, production printers where you kind of put a tree in one end and you got to book out the other. So these, these ran eight to eight to 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. And so the configuration software uh, of how you program was, was fairly complicated. So that was Mm -hmm. kind of my start in kind of doing some enterprise software. I did a lot Mm -hmm. of user research to be able to get on site, but Mm -hmm. no, I was not doing the cool stuff Mm -hmm. at park. Yeah, still, I think as a company, focusing on users and then trying to build solutions based on what they need and then keeping that experience in mind, I think itself was a big shift. When uh, oh yeah. yeah, it was a great place to start, yeah. and in some ways they were really ahead of the ahead of 
um, a lot of other parts of the industry, but I also look back in, in the sort of gated waterfall process that they followed. I'm like, my God, that was so heavy. But, you know, you were looking at projects that were multi-years long, but the, the, the way it was laid out, um, very, it felt very bloated compared to how we think about modern product development. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, interesting that you mentioned that you know, your interest and uh, your activity in the agile community. Uh, typically, UX is associated still in many companies as a typical stage gated or a waterfallish model, saying I have to do all the UI and then I will look at other things and so on. So, how do you think the user experience discipline fits in with? the agile ways of working? I think there were two things that drew me to uh, the agile space. One more practical and, and more aspirational and one maybe a little bit cynical. I'll start with the cynical one first. Okay. Um, most organizations don't do nearly enough or sometimes even any user research. And it's frustrating, right? You want to mm -hmm. you want to produce something that is going to serve people, even if that only for the reason that they'll then pay you, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if you're not being valuable, they're not going to pay you. So, and 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 it's not like being user centric and serving people and understanding their needs is anything new. Talking about that forever, mm -hmm. but a lot of organizations just weren't doing it. Still aren't doing it in many cases. So I thought, well, if we're not going to do the research. Uh, can we at least be able to iterate quickly? Can we put something out there, gather data, mm -hmm. revise, revise, revise? And that was, you know, how I understood the intent behind agility. So I was I was very drawn to it. And again, it was more of a, a practical uh, adaptation to what I saw as a dysfunctional approach to understanding users and customers. The more aspirational end was, I think, a frustration with how design process had been defined versus how it tended to be followed. And maybe these are kind of related, but there's like the, there's the books, like here's how design should work. I bought this, mm -hmm. then that, it's kind of waterfall, but do your design, your discovery, your design, your research, you know, there's an order to things. But the reality was that almost no project followed that recipe. Mm -hmm. And so in, in a lot of, my early work, it kind of felt like we were cheating. Like we weren't doing it right. Why aren't we doing it right? Mm -hmm. And when I started to talking to folks in the agile community, it was like, well, we have to adapt our process given the goals we're trying to achieve and the constraints we have. It's like, well, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So it's not that we're skimping out, although sometimes there are things that we could do that would be really useful. But, you know, the way I, I would, I've often phrased it is, how do we create a process that exactly meets our needs? Mm. And I, I think there's kind of two sides to that. And there's an empowering side, right? If you're going to be agile, you have to create a process that exactly meets your needs. There's a lot of freedom in that, right? Cool. We get to decide it, but there's also a lot of responsibility there. And I think that's potentially the scary part because if it's not working for you, it's on you to change it mm. and on you to do the advocacy and education and everything else within your organization to get to a point where what you're doing is serving the people in your organization, the goals of the organization and the goals of the people that you, that you're serving with your products and services. Yeah. So the traditional conflict between creativity and process or creativity and systems, 
how does that play out in the ux space when the natural association is that it is a very very creative and innovative kind of activity well one i think that design does not have a monopoly on creativity engineering is creative marketing is creative product can be very creative like all of these uh, managers can be very creative like everyone brings creativity to the work that they do so uh, i always hated when uh, folks in the design community would call themselves creatives because it sort of implies that everyone else isn't there more to your question though i think there is a tension between learning through iteration and being able to envision something in a holistic way um and i think you kind of have to figure out how to do both one thing i really liked early on when jeff Patton was starting to popularize story mapping was it felt like a nice way to bridge the two like here's like one of i mean there's lots of techniques out there but here's a good example of one where um you could create a holistic vision in a lightweight way so you could still evolve the vision while you were working on some of the individual components of it all right i, I he had an analogy early you know, years ago one of his blog posts which I think highlighted one of the challenges around how agility had been practiced of, you know, take them pick the picture of the tree and that's your holistic vision. Mm -hmm. And you, you know, the trunk and the big branches are like your epics, and the little leaves are your little stories. Great. And he said, now take the, all the leaves off the tree and put them in a pile and that's your backlog. And now grab a handful of them and put them in a bag and that's your sprint backlog. That's great. Well, you've got those little things, but they're disconnected from what that holistic vision is. Mm -hmm. How you might deal with any little piece of work could be a little bit different if you don't understand how it connects to the whole. Huh. So when we're focusing on a, on a macro task or a little feature, how do we make sure that we're still connecting it to the larger value and the holistic vision that we have for the product and, and for our customers. And that's, I think where there's that, that tension where we can get a lot of benefit from, from agility and from iteration, but we do need to be able to craft something that has that, that can demonstrate that holistic, uh, vision, cause that's how our customers experience it, right? They don't care how we build it. They only care. Can they get their work done? And, for them, it's all it's it's all connected. So if one team's working on this piece, another team's working on this piece, right? There's going to be a natural uh, challenge at, at boundaries, and if we're not managing those boundaries, the user will find out that and they'll notice it. So mm -hmm. that then that's where the experience breaks. Yeah. Well, one of the places the experience breaks. So when it comes to exploration and research, now where do you draw the line and say this is where we will stop, or now let us get into implementing and then getting the feedback? I mean, as much as possible, I think I'm looking at two different things. One is, frankly, where is the appetite for the organization I'm partnering with? How much do they understand and value the input of user research, and mm -hmm. how much am I going to be able to do? Mm -hmm. If they're if they just don't really value it, then I'm going to be fighting a very losing battle to try and convince them to do it. I have occasionally used a bit of a dark pattern and highlighted a significant, like if there's an existential risk, like if we mm. get this wrong, the product sinks, mm. that kind of thing can convince people that maybe we should talk to folks. Mm -hmm. um, th this happened to me, the story I tell 
when I was working at a poker company and uh, it was based in the US, but our biggest market was France. We actually didn't serve the US. So that's how we could mm -hmm. operate legally in the United States where, where poker was unregulated. Mm -hmm. France at the time was a, a gray market where, you know, so white market is regulated, black market is illegal. Gray market is, well, there's just no rules. Nothing's mm -hmm. on the book defining how online mm -hmm. gaming should work. At that point in time, uh, the French government looked around and said, there's a lot of money moving around. Mm -hmm. We want to tax that. We're going to regulate the market. Mm -hmm. We thought, great, do that. But they came up with some rules that were just pretty onerous and completely uh, unfamiliar to anyone who'd been playing online poker anywhere in the world. Hmm. Like it was like to like to validate your identity, you had to put in. I think it was like a copy of your your identification, and then oh. they would mail a code to your physical address. And so, and you couldn't actually complete the registration until you entered that code. So, I mean, oh. even if like you signed up and you'd have to wait days mm -hmm. to be able to actually complete the registration, not, and not even like a temporary registration, like you're mm. just locked out until you enter that code. So we were really slammed and trying to prepare ourselves technically for the market open. Mm -hmm. And we were not one of the bigger players. And I went to our leadership and I, and I said, look, uh, if we get this registration wrong, we're in a lot of trouble because mm. I, mean, I think our players are pretty loyal to us. They'll come back to us day one, mm -hmm. but they're going to see all these really, again, onerous restrictions on creating an account. Mm. And what are they going to do? Are they going to read the text that we put there that says, this is a government regulation and you're going to find mm -hmm. it everywhere else? No, they're going to go, I don't want to give you my ID. I'm going to go to the bigger guy. And so then they're going to go to one of our competitors. And they're going to see the same thing. Hmm. What are they going to do from there? Are they going to leave that site and come back to us? Mm -hmm. Or are they going to go, well, I'm already here. Hmm. I'll just complete it while I'm here. And I said, I think this is an existential risk for our organization. So mm -hmm. having never done uh, user research in, in country before, all of a sudden I had like a budget to go do research with our players in France. Uh, and I even promised engineering. I said, look, we're, we won't make any changes before launch. I know you folks are slammed. We'll do a fast follow, right? You know, we'll release mm. right after launch to kind of fix anything we find out. Uh, and of course, we um, we we found some pretty significant obstacles, mm -hmm. and somehow managed to shift things around on our schedule to address them before launch. Oh, so, so, you know, we were able <laughs> to able to do it. Uh, so that was a, again a bit of a dark pattern to mm. you know highlight the risk, but it, it I think it helped connect a lack of understanding of how people were going to respond to the design mm -hmm. to not just a business goal, but potentially avoiding a business crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In doing that, it's a very good example that you mentioned that you have a deadline that is probably existential crisis and so on. How do you infer the big picture from a sampling of research that you do? There's a lot of research that you don't need to um, talk to a lot of people to find the biggest problems. And I don't remember the numbers offhand, but usually if you talk to like things like as small as six or seven, mm -hmm. you're going to find the bulk of the the challenges as long as, you know, per say persona, uh, mm -hmm. you know, so if you have very different groups of people that you're serving, you might need to do a couple, a couple from each. If they're similar, you might be able to kind of merge them a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, my magic number is I like to do eight just because usually by the time you've done six people, by the time you've talked to six people and you've done some usability testing, mm -hmm. you're seeing the same things over and over, mm -hmm. but every once in a while you get one or two idiosyncratic people mm -hmm. 
and maybe only one person does something. So it's nice to kind of have another five or six that kind of feel a little bit more consistent. And then with those idiosyncratic folks, it's a little bit of an art to determine whether what they're saying or doing is a brilliant insight that actually represents other people that, but may not, they may not have articulated or whether their perspective on the problem is just a little bit different. Hmm. Now in an ideal world you, that, you know, you would combine that qualitative research and I'm, I'm more, my expertise is definitely more on the qualitative side with quantitative research. Right? So, and you can go back and forth. The quantitative gives you a lot of what, but no why. Hmm. And yeah, with a small sample size, you can actually be pretty confident that it probably applies more broadly, but you can always validate that. Mm. You know, So you can take that call those qualitative findings and then vol- uh, validate them with a quant study, mm-hmm. whether that's looking at your uh, you know, existing data on user behavior or surveys. There's lots of, lots of ways to do that. So ideally you would do both, uh, mm. but that's, I've been in very few organizations that did either, let alone both, but we're, there was one where we did and it was, it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that kind of probably answers the next question that I had in terms of the challenges with uh, having a sample or having a postulate and the abstraction or extrapolation based on that, not falling into a trap of stereotyping. Yeah, I think some of that comes down to us as... uh, Inter- on the internal team, whether it's design, product, et cetera, being able to let go of our internal bias, which is hard, right? We built the product, we designed it, and it's hard not to either ask leading questions mm-hmm. or interpret the observations in a way that fits our expectations or makes our decisions look good. Mm. That's not what we want. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually want disconfirming information. That's helpful. We want mm-hmm. to learn what what didn't I take into account? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, if if you're looking to confirm what you've already done, you're probably going into research with the wrong uh, frame of mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's also been this school of thought of having what you call the adaptive user experience or the same user yeah. on day one versus on maybe in a day 30 or after two years yeah. is not the same. So how Absolutely. do you yeah how do you understand or anticipate that or how what can be done to build this so here i'm probably going a little beyond just the scope of a designer but also the architects and the developers so i think it, it you need a you need a bit more of a mature model in terms of how your users behave at different points in their life cycle mm-hmm. so if we're talking about personas for example while a lot of folks will make role-based personas, it's a default place where many people start. It's probably not the most helpful uh, because no role is a monolith. There's different people within that role. Mm. One difference might be their level of skill or familiarity in the domain. Mm-hmm. So you might look at a, a first-time user or a novice different than a beginner versus advanced versus expert. Mm -hmm. And if you know what the inflection points are between those, like obviously it's smooth, but you know, if you can kind of define some stages, you can also look to understand how people move from one to the other. How do their needs change? 
And how do you then want to adapt the experience? Games do a great job with this, right? Mm. You know, anytime you start playing a game, you're you're a novice to that game, unless mm. like it's a title you've played before and it's like the version two, three, or four. But even there, they've probably done something new. So most games start with like an onboarding, right? You know, they they mm. teach you how to play it. Mm. And then typically they start removing some of the crutches that they put in place to help mm. you along and allow you to develop into more of a power user. Mm-hmm. And and again, sometimes you can choose like, what difficulty do I want? Do I want the super hard one mm-hmm. um, or do I want a little bit easier? Do I want to see like the widget that shows me where the bad guys are or do I want to yeah. hide that, right? You know, again, I can kind of choose what level I want and we can do kind of the same thing in um, with products if we understand what, again, what different people need at a different point in time. Mm. It can also change how you do user research. I mean, even within one study, uh, I was doing a design for a call center application. You know, you call up a, a, a customer service yeah. person. And we knew that they were going to be trained and they do the same job. They'd be working in that. They would do hundreds of calls a day, day in and day out. Mm-hmm. So as opposed to say an e-commerce site where you want it to work really well the first time, because if it doesn't, they'll go somewhere else. Mm. You don't really want to optimize for first-time use uh, on a product that people are going to use hundreds of times because mm. the you'll it'll tend to be slower because you're guiding people through it. It'll be simpler, mm-hmm. and those people need a power experience. Mm. So, even without training, as opposed to just doing like a a one-time run through the through the prototype and getting feedback, I structured it as five simulated calls that got in, increasingly complex. Mm-hmm. So I got to see how did they react to it the first time with no training? What were their mm-hmm. concerns? Where mm-hmm. did they struggle? And then we did it again. Mm-hmm. And then we did it again. And then we did it. So after five times through, even though it was still one session, I could still kind of see how were they adapting to this design? Was mm-hmm. it getting better and easier or, and they were becoming more facile with it or was it uh, slowing them down? And I could get 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 feedback at sort of at each call and as they got more familiar with it. So it just causes us to structure our feedback sessions a little bit differently as well. Hmm. Yeah, in that case, I don't know whether this is a, a right interpretation or extrapolation of what you said. Uh, one of the goals that typically the UX designers focus on is to help the user stay focused and then get something accomplished quickly. Now with the uh, post-pandemic and... Uh, the models of multitasking and things that are coming. There is on one side, we say should not be distracted, stay focused. But at the same time, we need a little breather when we are having, say, back-to-back meetings or in a call center, call from one call to another to the next call. How can the user experience discipline? Take, are there any patterns that will give people a little breather? Somewhat like a forced Pomodoro maybe, or uh, I don't know. Uh, is there any experience that you have? Yeah. So, and look, this is not just, you, you know, unique to UX, right? But, mm. you know, it's that difference between kind of micro level thinking and systemic thinking. I asked him about how UX designers balance the two needs of uh, being focused at the same time, intentionally having some distractions to relieve some stress. He provides that answer in the next episode. 
We thank Siddharth for the music and Anita for promoting the software people stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcast@pm-powerconsulting.com.